Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. At the back end of Landlines, the first song on Billy Woods and Elucid's latest album together is Arm & Hammer, an unknown voice comes in and says through a crackling phone line, if a lion wakes up in the morning, he knows to hunt a gazelle. After a heavy pause, the voice tries to ease things up a little before being cut off. But I'm okay though, he says. Woods and Elucid have built remarkable bodies of work on their own over the past 20 odd years. Elucid is an inventive rapper and increasingly sought after producer. And last year's I Told Bessie gets better with every listen. Woods has already released one standout record in 2023, Maps with Kenny Siegel. His previous full length, Atheops, was the Faders album of the year in 2022. Go back and listen to Raphael's interview with him and Preservation from last April on his feed. And he's the man behind the Vital Backwoods Studios label. But Woods and Elucid draw weird things out of each other. Odd allusions, thoughts, non sequiturs, flights of poetry, morbid fixations that they wouldn't find on their own. Six albums in as Arm and Hammer, and they're locked in, producing avant-garde rap records that don't really sound like anything else. Which brings us back to We Buy Diabetic Test Strips, an album named for a pernicious New York City scam in the middle of a million other New York City scams. Here, Woods and Elucid think openly about death and destruction, about the indifference and even the outright callousness of the universe to an individual's suffering. They crack jokes about it occasionally. They never get didactic because there are too many illusions and delusions and ideas overlapping for things to be that straightforward. The lion knows to hunt a gazelle, but they're okay though. Test Strips also sounds as knotty and troubled as it reads. The concrete for the album was poured when a lucid and engineer Willie Green went into the studio with an all-star quartet of jazz musicians, spearheaded by the celebrated London-based band leader, Shabaka Hutchings. Elucid and Green ran some JPEG Mafia beats into the room and then let them improvise. They got a mammoth session out of it, and after bringing in a couple more musicians to fill out the sound, chopped some sections up and sent them around to their favorite producers. LP, Kenny Siegel, DJ Haram, Black Noise, Preservation, loads more. Voices appear from nowhere too, with Jungle Pussy, More Mother, and Pink Sifu among them. If Woods and Elucid push each other into strange places, the lineup on test strips drags them into a consciousness-expanding unknown. When I spoke to Woods and Elucid about the record, our conversation was just as windy. We've cut out at least five minutes where Woods and I go back and forth on the three best Portland Trailblazers of all time. But they were down, as always, to go deep on their process, the community they've helped to build, and the legacy they want to leave. I want to start where you guys began with this record. So you began with a bunch of JPEG Mafia beats. Why did you want his beats to form the scaffolding of this project? I've always wanted to do a long form project with JPEG. We had a song we did maybe five or six years ago, but I, I always knew that there was like a long-term full fleshed out type project waiting. So I was like, no better time than now. We were in communication, you know, heard some things, reacted to some things. And yeah, we got a great start on this record with those. What did you tell Shabaka Hutchings about the project when you first spoke to him? Did you have a plan for that first session laid out already or were you just exploring? I think I was the person who reached out to him first and we knew the outline of what we were trying to do. And so it was more so, hey, do you think this is cool and something you could be a part of? 
and when. And then once his participation was secured, Lucida and Willie Green found the other musicians and put everything together and oversaw it. What was it that you were saying to him? Because it it's kind of, as far as I can tell, you're basically putting four great musicians into a room and just letting them figure it out. What were the parameters that you that you gave him? There were none. It was completely exploratory. These people had never met each other. They had never heard this music before. So we all get into the room and we're just listening, just listening to music. Then they just start to set up and they kind of play along to the song and kind of splinters off in a different direction and things stop and start and stop and start. And there's not like a lot of verbal communication, but they're just being musicians, doing what good musicians do and listening to each other. And things start happening. You know, grooves start deepening. We capture something in those few hours of sessions. Really no direction. Maybe something for the drummer, which it didn't really matter in the end because it wasn't anything that we've kept. You know, I had an idea for um, the drummer to play like some blast beats, which are like really quick, really intense, fast sort of style of drumming, you know, using a lot of like hardcore type things. And it didn't really matter because it didn't flesh out in the end, you know? But just like definitely explaining ideas of like, yeah, I wanted to create tension. I wanted to play with like their dynamics and going from loud to soft to loud again. But that's it, pretty basic. Was there a moment when you realized that it was it was coming together, when it just sort of snapped into place? You know it immediately. You know it immediately when something starts to gel. Uh, it's usually like the drummer and the bassist. There's a lockstep right there. Shabaka will come on top. <laughs> the Max would come through with the melody. Yeah, it's 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 once once it happens, everyone in the room knows what's happening. Me and Willie Green, we're on the opposite end. We're in the control room, and we're just kind of like you know the moment that it happens, we just look at each other. You know, we don't say just look at it. We know this is it. You know, they weren't playing continuously. They stopped five and six times, and this individual, you know, seven or eight, maybe even more takes. You know, but we caught enough of those moments where they totally locked in together where we were able to like take that and use that to produce this record. Given the sort of chopped up nature of things and how stop, understandably stop start, it's like a long period of time, musicians figuring out each other's like grooves and rhythms. So what do you then send to the, to, to your favorite producers? What, what's the, what's the audio file look like? Willie Green could probably speak to that, but yeah, we're talking hours of playing. So maybe four to five hours of what that looks like individually tracked musicians. It's huge. Although it was being chopped up into digestible pieces distributed to different people. It wasn't like everybody got four hours of music. We narrowed it down to, I I don't know the number right now offhand, but we narrowed it down to a number of these are the moments. And then just like, well, I think Seb Bash would sound great with this. Maybe DJ Haran would sound cool with this. Preservation might sound cool with this, you know? Sure. I mean, I'm assuming that you you got the beats before you started writing the, the lyrics. Well, not all of the beats. By the time that um, the jam session, if we're going to call it that, is happening, we had already probably made three or so songs unrelated to that. So did you know sort of roughly the direction that you wanted to go in lyrically? with the record, to the extent that there's like a cohesive 
one cohesive idea. Uh, I can't say as a collective that we had that conversation. And it was definitely a, a record where we kind of let things come in and show themselves as we were working. For myself personally, I had things I wanted to try and do, um, which uh, in a very more uh, pre-thought out way, some of which ended up happening, others didn't. But I had directions I wanted to go and things I wanted to do. But part of that was also I had come off of doing a bunch of different, very different solo records and just always looking to my new territory. So in my personal head, I had things that I wanted to approaches I wanted to try and take. But other than that, no, I think the, the the concepts and the feel of the album, especially in this case, really came from just working on it and seeing what came about. Those sessions sort of informed that then, right? That the sound that Shabaka Hutchings and the band create and that the producers then give back to you, that that sort of informs the lyrical content. I think I think that's uh that could be true, you know. Uh I think in a record like um Total Recall. Kenny Siegel produced. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's such a vibe that's created. Like in my head, when I heard the beat that Kenny sent, it immediately just gave me this sort of mood and that informed like where we were going with the lyrics. So I think that happens on this record, but yeah, on most Arm & Hammer records or, you know, for my solo things, I love to let the music speak to me first and then I can counteract that. Oh, well, on a, yeah, on an individual song level, the different beats played a huge, you know, you looked at a song like uh, Block Call, Niggardly, whatever you want to call it. That vibe is conjured completely by the beat. Total Recall, again, kind of just led a certain way. So I do think the fact that that session did definitely play into the mood that came about in parts of the album. Body warm price with rice charm, it's electric. Everybody wanna be naked and famous. Tricky said it, I'm like, go ahead. I was drowsy when the credits scroll. Suck my teeth, out gold. Echoes and reflections, blessings, brave and bold. But what I traded for. Exit door at the club from nowhere, way out of nowhere. Earth getting warm, but we go in the oven. I can't do much but eat my colors. Say what I say and really mean it. We already in between, it was written. One place I wanted to, like, one, I suppose, collaborator I wanted to think about specifically. So there's that voice at the beginning of Landlines who says, life's basically tomorrow's breakfast. If a lion wakes up in the morning, he knows to hunt a gazelle, then he takes that long pause and says, I'm okay, though. What did that phrase say to you? Like, I feel like when I got this phone call, I was in Portugal. And just sort of delving into the ideas of communication and networks and... um I like the way the sort of disembodied voices and um, truncated conversations float in and out of this record. And so that was something I was trying to build. Did you look into the origin of, of that phrase about lions and uh, gazelles? No. No. Nobody really knows it, its origins, but the, the earliest uh, example that anybody can find of it is from a piece in The Economist in 1985. It is from a securities analyst. He says, uh, every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up, it knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning a lion wakes up, it knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. It doesn't matter whether you're a lion or a gazelle, when the sun comes up, you'd better be running. And he just said this to a room full of stockbrokers and bankers. And the quote from The Economist 
says, um, stockbrokers and bankers at a recent London conference on financial technology laughed appreciatively at this from Dr. Dan Montano, an equities dealer. They chuckled perhaps a touch indulgently at predictable American excess, which felt very relevant to this record. Well, first, let me say that is some high level research. So first, I, I tip my hat because I did not expect to be out-researched on my own idea here. The person who I was talking to was born in the U.S., but grew up in Africa, but has an African family members and is living in Africa. It could be a proverb or something like that. Um, I'm not from the same part of Africa that they are, so I'm not familiar. But that is, that is great context. I love that. There's a closeness to to death on this record, I feel. Perhaps more than other records that both of you have made that have dealt quite intimately with it. I actually want to go into that a bit because Woods, you, you've spoken before about how death has sort of permeated your work. Like There was a conversation you had with Mike Eagle a while back where you said you'd sort of been surrounded by it growing up. Yeah, I would say, although it's figured into both of our works, and into Arm and Hammer's work, it is more of a fixture of my work. Yeah, of course. And well, I mean, Elucid, it's obviously, you know, your your last solo LP dealt very intimately with with like with loss. I, I suppose just from a different angle, you know? Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it definitely speaks there, you know, personally, but also politically. You know, like I grew up I grew up in 80s New York City where there's like certain sects of folks that believe, you know, black people were on the extinction list. You know what I'm saying? Like this this idea of death of, of like this sort of systematic domination that's going to wipe us all out was very real. Personally and, and politically, it's always kind of there, just floating. I got the impression, it's like here on this album, more than, more than any of either of your other records, it's it feels just as heavy as ever, but there's almost a sense of humor. Elusive, I'm thinking specifically about there's that moment at the end of don't lose your job when you're sort of musing on death and your own funeral. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these things, these things are, are are brought to the present, you know, in the making of this, my wife was pregnant. So, you know, you're right there on that precipice of, of, of life and death, you know, for someone that's carrying a child. And I think that that comes with, for me, you know, I've had conversations with other people, like fatherhood as well, and just like, you know, vulnerability and protection. And, you know, what would I do if, you know, we were put in this position. Could I do this? Can I do this to protect my family? So I think it's always kind of like right there at the surface as a father. Fatherhood sort of makes you think about legacy as well, about what you about what you leave. There's some of that on this album for sure, which actually I would say was, it's funny you'd say that because your first suggestion for a theme for any song on this album was about legacies when we did, when you sent me writing prompts for Landlines. Lucid, you send Woods prompts on a track. Or like you, you you guys will send each other prompts to try and get each other moving on the track. 
Yeah, just maybe like a random text message. <laughs> There's so many ways that it can happen, but um, definitely sometimes somebody is like, oh, here. Or sometimes it's just like, this is the title. Other times it can be something where we actually have to get on a phone and have a conversation about what it is you're trying to do. And an example of that might be like, um, touch and agree. I don't remember exactly whose idea that was. I know you had the title, although I think that was done afterwards. But I just remember we had to have an actual conversation because it was very specific back and forth um, about like, it was more complex. And then other sometimes you write totally separately and things match up. That's got to take like a, a degree of understanding that has your relationship changed over the last like decade or so? Like how has that grown? And how is it different now? Are you talking about outside of the music realm or like how we operate or, or both? I mean, we could answer both. I would say outside, Lucid is one of my best friends. We live like a few blocks away from each other. Um, although I wouldn't say we necessarily see each other more or less because lives have changed, people have kids, whatever. But we also tour a lot. We spend a lot of time together. There was always great energy, synergy, ability to trust the other person. And of course, that only grows over time. That closeness outside, that does that change the way that you act inside the music? I think it just kind of uh, allows for like a comfort level to send ideas, you know, that may not be fleshed out, that may need some tinkering, but I'm okay with letting you hear this because I trust you, because I know I'm not going to be like, you know, made to feel any kind of way that I shouldn't. You know, I'm creating. I should be of this one confident sort of mind. I know what I want to say. And, you know, sometimes I end up there and sometimes I don't. But, yeah, I'm, there's a comfort level in, uh, in, in sending half-fleshed-out ideas to him. I don't know. I think we both have, like, really good instincts. And I think we, we follow that. And that kind of, like, shows up in the way that we can write maybe in a, a different place at a different time and not let anyone hear, not hit, let each other hear like what we've made and then put it together. And it's just like, we're on the same page. We actually <laughs> linked up some kind of way and it, it happened this way, you know? That's what I chase. I chase that, that feeling, making music with Woods. It's really uh, special to me. Yeah, I agree with all that. And the thing I would say though, is that that all still falls to me under art, and this is not to downplay anything else because I am very lucky to have such a good friend. I also can create, we're just lucky to have such a good friend to begin with, genuinely enjoy everything about Chaz. And it's obviously good when you have to tour and work with people, if you actually really get along with them, then that's, you know, not something, it's a benefit to the process instead of being something you have to work around, you know? So that is all good. But I think on working on music, it's still an art. It still comes down to being a trust of that person's artistically. Where if we were not friends, but we still had the same artistic trust, energy, whatever, and we only saw each other work on music, I feel like it would be the same. Of course, it's enhanced and better in a wide scope. But in terms of what ends up being created, uh, there are things that sometimes come of you know, being friends and being able to be like, you know what, that thing that happened, you should use that here. 
You know, that does come into play. But most of the things that you're talking about are things that started to become obvious very early on in working together where I could be like, here's my idea. And A, the person's receptive to trying the idea, although sometimes not receptive to my beat choices, but receptive to trying the idea or situations where you're like, you do something and, you know, like the other person can help assist in making what you were building successful. You know, there are songs that we did where I was just like the song. And at one point, uh, let's say when it doesn't start with a kiss, it had a different format. And then I was like, man, what the loose is doing here is so crazy. I just need to get out of the way. And so my great contribution to that song was figuring out, you know, some things to help Pudge and, he would be the right person to build onto what we initially had and basically just providing a little bridge for Elusive to go crazy on that song. True story, I forgot four zips in the laundry. I was sweating fearful. Went back the next day, she calmly gave me the laundry, leaned in and said, Poppy, be careful. They lied when they said it wasn't enough. They lied when they said it wasn't enough. Meet me in the float tank, I got boomers in my system I the moon, cricket lullaby, feeling sick and vicious In the silent west, name your ops without saying the system Specificity matters, numbers snitching, who might die today I don't know a word they didn't say was in this final day That's such a uh, an important, crucial like part of Arm & Hammer, Arm and Hammer music making That I think that I personally, that I saw um, maybe people before me This is where they faltered making group records and it's, it just becomes like this bar fest at all times. And it's just like, the song could have been better if you just like scaled it back here. And just like knowing when to subtract when making a song has become very important to me uh, when, I, when I throw my little producer hat on. And, you know, thankfully I was someone that understands that as well. Like you can just like cut the ego down and just fall back. We're going to make a great song. If you just dial it down this way, you know what I mean? I have no problem playing that role and contribute contributing in, in other ways. Yeah, and I think the other thing that is big for me has also been the ability to take a nuanced idea to Chaz, to Elucid, and be able to all different types of ideas and for it to work and not be worried about something either being too on the nose or not close enough to the target. It sounds like a simple thing to say. But sometimes I have ideas where I'm like, man, this is a, for myself even, I might be like, I, I, either is this not going to cohere or make sense to someone else when I'm trying to convey, or is it going to be too direct? Am I going to write it? Is it going to sound like an essay instead of a piece of music or something? And so um, when you're able to do something and uh, and know not only that the person isn't going to come in with something straight on the nose, but also that they might take your idea and run with it to places that you didn't envision and stretch while staying in concert with what you're trying to do. It's interesting hearing you say or imply that there's kind of a sweet spot in an Arm & Hammer song between that sort of over-explanation and under-explanation, just trying to get that just right. And obviously for every artist, that's going to be, it's going to be calibrated like slightly differently. I thought it was kind of interesting on this record. Tell me if I'm completely misreading this. I might well be, but what was interesting was like, uh, my record speaks for itself. Don't try to add on. 
do you, do you actively resist people maybe overinterpreting the work? No, I don't. Listen, I, I, I always retain the right to give my opinion and my thoughts if I feel like it. And I will sometimes be like, whoa, what a terrible interpretation somebody had. But as a child of a, of a critic, I guess pretty early on, I understood that, you know, your music are like kids that you send into the world. You definitely don't want people telling lies on them. You're hoping you're sending them out there prepared and representing what you send them out there for and your family. But at the same time, they have other lives that they're going to live, you know, and your work is going to be interpreted in different ways. And some of those, of course, I can look at it and be like, well, this is very stupid. And then other times people bring elements of in critiquing your work, even if it wasn't in your mind when you made it, it doesn't necessarily disqualify a critique from being relevant or a connection from being relevant. A perfect example would be what you just read about the a lion and a gazelle. I don't know for sure if that's what he was talking about or the reference he was making, uh, but the fact that you brought that in, create that angle perspective to look at it is interesting. Even though I am the creator, I am able to see a wider piece of what I played a part in making because there's there's a perfect example of where I put something together without necessarily fully understanding every aspect to it myself because I didn't ask him where he got that phrase. I just assumed it was him being him. I don't know if you know African people, they say things that sound like uh, proverbs all the time. <laughs> so I just didn't even really think about it on that level. But then um, what you said, it is very relevant. I wanted to talk about backwards and what you guys have created. You were talking there about how you have an understanding of each other. Woods, you were saying that even if you and Elucid weren't like really close outside of the music, you still have an understanding just as, as artists, as people who knew each other's work. That kind of mirrors some stuff that you said about backwards in the past, where it's like there might be people who whose work you really love or, or who you think can can really rap, and then you get into a studio with them, and it just it doesn't work like that. You don't want to do business with them, or there's like a lot of criteria that you have to fill to for this to really make sense on like an artistic level and a musical level. And then you look at the the track list for this. You've got ten producers on this record. And then we hear Jungle Pussy, More Mother, Pink Sifu, Cavalier, Cardi Castro, Piss Jordan from Soul Glow. Like the community that you've built around Arm and Hammer, the community you've built around Backwards more broadly is, is increasingly vast. And you've got like JPEG Mafia, LP, Kenny Siegel, like big, big names. Do you enjoy throwing the doors open like this? Is it like an integral part of the ethos now? I think every project has its own logic. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think uh, in this record, the expansiveness or the spacious feeling of like the album, I just want to like, I don't know, we, we, we're we dealing with like a thinking about resources, right? And and I'm thinking about resources in a different way with this new situation with Fat Possum and just like really trying to luxuriate in that and really just like, yo, I'm I'm doing this thing. And it felt it felt like it could be grand. And in the end, you know, I... I did what I wanted to do. Uh, I think we did what we we accomplished what we set out to do. And you know what people think of it is what they think of it. But you know, listening back, I feel like we we did that and weren't very overindulgent, which is I guess the trappings, uh, a trapping of like really going in with this sort of grand vision. 
I like to think every album that we've done is unique, but certainly none more so than this one. Um, and I, it's interesting because I was talking to somebody and sometimes I think of Arm & Hammer Records as pairs. You know, I kind of feel like race music and furtive movements, race music is is, is, is a bit overlong and furtive movements is a bit short. Put them both together, you'd really have two LPs. That's us like finding and together finding our way by the end of the second record of Furtive Movements, finding our way to like the what Arm & Hammer sound and vibe was going to be and how we were going to really meld as two artists. And then Rome and Paraffin are very linked to me. And then Shines and Haram to me are two opposite sides, like night and day of similar albums, sonically, you know? Both of them exist in nature to a certain extent, but in Shrines, it's more open, sometimes scary and threatening, but it's more opening, more open, more sunlight, more green. And Haram is like being in the woods at night or something. This album, I'm curious to see what its pairing will be. I think that one's yet to come, but I'm curious to see what it will be. Yeah, in some way, shape, or form. I don't know what it will, what form will take, but in as much as the logic that things that have previously happened, you should assume will happen again. Just to like go back to all of the, and like, you know, you're right, every record has its own internal logic, but there's also a sense of community that I think both of you have, have been part of and have fostered over the last couple of decades, really. To an outsider, like how important is a sense of community in independent hip hop? And how do you think it differs from the mainstream? Because backwards is ethos and the ethos that both of you have, have had, like, the, and the community that's built around what you guys do seems totally at odds with the industry machine, right? Uh, I guess I, I kind of don't really think of it in those terms, but I do, I do enjoy being around and creating with people whose like voices I respect and I admire. And yeah, we're backwards seems to be that kind of environment. You know, a lot of these artists, um, I, I didn't know except through the music. I'm always listening to like what, what's happening. You know, I, I love new music. And if I like an artist, I'm going to say so. I'm, I'm going to check your show out. I'm going to see if what I heard online actually translates to my ears in a room. And when it does, I think you, you know, I might think you're the real deal. I felt that with Kia. I felt that with Pink Sifu. I knew that with JPEG Mafia. I knew that with Milo, uh, Rap Ferreira. Like, I, there's a lot of people where it's just like, oh, this is for real. What's up? Let's let's do something. You know what I mean? So yeah, it it it, it is building. You know, it's interesting that that I don't I haven't really thought even thought about that um, in terms of like building a community. But I think that's really important. I think it's really important to establish a group of people around. I mean, not just myself, ourselves, just build up a squad that's like, you know, of a, of a like mind, you know, pulling from the same place. Because I feel like maybe like early 2000s in New York City, uh, what I thought of was a scene. And I'm, at the time, I'm a teenager. I'm barely had my feet with any sort of scene, but I'm I'm beginning to like explore and try to find my place in a scene. And I felt like it might've been falling apart. <laughs> there was like a split. And I feel like as an MC, as a rapper here in New York City, I kind of came up in this sort of like rap dark ages. And there's a lot 
that happened and a lot that died, a lot that dissolved. And I felt like um, the type of music that I was doing, the sounds that I was into, I kind of felt like an outlier, even among a group of people that I had found to do music with. I still felt like an outsider. So it's kind of cool to see this type of vibe and style and outlook on on music um, and life be, you know, maybe more centered, I guess. I think Woods, I think Woods is and was an outlier. What is that? A bunch of outliers together. What is that equal to, you know? But yeah, that's tight. That's tight. That's a tight idea to me. Woods, I was listening to an interview you did with with that Call Out Culture podcast a couple years back. What you were saying was actually really similar to what Lucifer was just saying there. Because you were saying that like, one of the reasons that you started backwards and that you started releasing your music there was that like if you said if, if I was if it was going to be unorthodox, my, the music needed to be unorthodox in a way that my music wasn't. So like you had all these unorthodox artists, but what they were making was unorthodox, like not in the not in the right way. Their style was different, and like what you were doing didn't really fit. No, it didn't really. It didn't really fit. You know, and I feel like um, my initial entry points is a little earlier of a situation than Lucid. So like the underground was, it felt alive and thriving, but it was very, at the same time, there was a lot of orthodoxy. And I mean, I wasn't as good either, but um, there was a lot of orthodoxy where there wasn't a lot of interest or room for what I was doing, at least without, uh, you know, I was lucky to have some affiliation to uh, Vort Omega that even, I think, helped me get a monicum of like a modicum of attention uh at the very beginning but very little but i was lucky to have that because i think like if something was political most people needed it to come in the form of something like uh, a mortal techniques album at that time when i was like dropping off my first record camouflage i remember the woman at fat beats being like she's like i checked it out and it's like it's not bad nor terrible, but like, this is what you need to aim for. And I actually bought, she was so hyped about it. I bought it and took it home. And I was like, not like it was a, a bad record or something that had made a significant ep- impact at the time. But I also recognized that that wasn't the record I was going to make. Elusive, was there, was there a similar feeling for you a little later? In a way, I think that I, I maybe my style kind of like, maybe my choice in production definitely threw people off for a while as I like grew older, you know, into like manhood, understanding who I am as a man. Like I wasn't going to say certain things on a record, which may have been an easy, you know, way to look cool to somebody who doesn't know me as a person, you know, or like supporting a particular idea or politic that I might think is self destructive or destructive in general. Like I wasn't going to do these things. And, you know, maybe you lose people that way. Uh, I think also maybe in terms of ways that I may have like structured songs, you know, it's not, it's not what people are used to. It's not a banger. You know, I kind of like everyone wanted to make a banger. I, I don't have club ready beats. Like I, I wasn't interested in being on radio. I, I just, I just, you know, it was just a feeling that I was chasing inside myself. And I just had to, to to touch it, you know what I mean? And just like at a certain point, just really blocking off like whatever's happening because this would, this, you know, what it made me feel 
felt better, you know, than whatever else I was receiving out in the world. I mean, the, the, the negative feedback or so. I mean, there were some people that dug what I did. There's, there's no doubt about it. But it became a very insular sort of like practice. Also, shout out to all of the people who really have been there since day one, both for me and for Lucid. You know, they, you really like Small Pro was like, this is the best rapper about a Lucid. And Small Pro has been a long time just homie and supporter the beginning. Yeah, from the beginning. Yeah. Absolutely. And we're we're going on tour. And one of the first places we're stopping on the tour is with my boy, uh, Jeff. And I'm like, this guy bought my CD when it was on CD Baby. And I met him in the city that sell him his slim case CD that I had made the copies of the artwork myself at Kinko's in Astor Place. It's big ass Kinko's. And it's crazy, like, you know, uh, that after all this time, I mean, we're very good friends now, but like, you're like, yeah, that, nobody was feeling it, but a few people were. Anyway, don't want to keep you guys any longer. Thanks for everything. Great questions. Absolutely. Thanks, Alex, man. That, that was kind of cool to talk to you today. That was Billy Woods and Elucid in conversation with The Fader. Armin Hammer's new album, We Buy Diabetic Test Strips is out now via Backward Studios and Fat Possum. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.